Luke 14, verse 16. <coughs> then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be full or filled. For I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Let's go bring these things to the Lord and let's commit this time to him. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for your precious word. We thank you that we can trust every word within this book which we hold within our hands and that you have preserved it so faithfully for us. Father, we thank you for those uh, men of old, those prophets and scribes who wrote these words down faithfully, that we might be blessed uh, even today, many years later. And we pray for the teaching this morning, not from me, but from your spirit. I pray that each one of our hearts will be opened to uh, the spirit's leading and the grace that we need, Lord, to understand your word, that we might apply to our lives. Father, we pray for much grace. We pray for your blessing upon us today, that we might glorify you in every word and deed. And we pray that this church would continue to glorify you in this neighbourhood and indeed in all of Melbourne. Father, we just thank you for this grace and for this salvation which we enjoy. We might celebrate together as your children. We thank you once again for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, I had um, my biannual checkup uh, this past week. Um, I had a heart operation about five years ago now. Is it a bit five or is it a bit more? 2014. Oh, wow, that's a long time ago. Still going strong. Um, I have a, uh, an echocardiogram every couple of years to check whether what they've done in there is still holding up. I think I'm past the warranty period, but they still check it anyway. Um, and I, as I was uh, lying down on the bed, the lady who was pointing this particular device looking inside my heart, and I was seeing my heart operating on a screen, which is quite an interesting uh, experience. Um, started a conversation. She started asking me questions. What do you do and how do you do it? I mean, when someone's got that thing there and it takes about 45 minutes, I suppose you might as well have a chat. <laughs> so she asked me, what do I do? And uh, inevitably it, it, it went to ministry and, uh, and she seemed interested. So we started having a conversation about Christianity and, and, um, and about the Lord. And then she confessed that her mum was a Christian and attended a, more of these newer sort of churches uh, in the city. And her father was an atheist. And I, and I said to her, wow, you, you must live in a, an interesting world, having a father who's an atheist and a mother who's a Christian. She said, yeah, there's been plenty of interesting conversations. And I said, what about you? I said, where, where do you sit in the whole thing in that, in that spectrum between non-belief and belief? And she, uh, and she said that she wasn't a believer. I said, Did you, have you ever attended church? I'm assuming your mum spoke to you about Christianity sometime. She said, yeah, she has. She said, I attended church, but it wasn't for me. I think the drums were a bit too loud. <laughs> and then I asked her, I said, have you ever investigated the Bible? Have you ever read the Bible? To which she said, no, she's never read the Bible. And I said, well, have you ever thought about reading it and understanding for yourself what the gospel is or what the truth of it is. I said, you can look at what people do and that can lead you in different directions. I said, but you'll only ever really know the truth if you discover it for yourself in the word of God. And she said, well, she wasn't really considering it. And I said, well, what's holding you back? And she said, one of the things that holds her back from being a Christian or making that decision is that she never thought, um, she said that she can't believe in something that says it's the only way. 
So it's, Christianity says it's exclusive. So it's the only way to get to heaven. And she said that in her experience, because she was Malaysian, so she's had experience with a lot of other different um, uh, faiths. She said she couldn't believe that only one particular faith, that so narrow one, could be the only right way. So therefore she didn't feel it was necessary uh, for her to make that decision. She wasn't interested in finding out, which I find interesting in itself. Her excuse was enough for her. That excuse, which, which simply stated, was, I don't believe there's only one particular way. It doesn't seem right. Was enough for her to stop her from looking any further into Christianity. She didn't feel as if the question that she raised, the excuse that she raised, had any adequate explanation. Obviously, no one had ever given her the right explanation as to why it is so narrow and why it's exclusive. And, but what, a, what about if that excuse that she had for not investigating Christianity or reading the Bible, what if there was a simple explanation that you could find in the Bible? What if the message of the Bible is a story of a loving God who provided a way of escape from a burning house that we ourselves set on fire? What then if the hand of a firefighter came through a window while the house is burning down around you and said, here, take my hand if you want to live? Would you argue about there being only one way? If you were in that predicament, if you were about to be saved and you were offered salvation at that particular point, would you go, oh, no, that can't be the right, only way because there's got to be other ways for me to be rescued from this particular place? And you would think that's a ludicrous argument. You wouldn't be arguing with the hand of a firefighter if through taking you through one window if you were stuck in that situation. Yet, how ludicrous is it? When your eternal life is at stake. When you are on the road and on the path to an eternity in a burning lake of fire and you don't know the way out. Would it be worth a deeper look? I suspect it would be if you knew the answers to that. Yet we find people in our world full of these types of excuses and they'll say the excuse and it's like, that's it. There's no argument about it. It covers all the bases. There is no other information or no, no other discussion that needs to be entered into because my excuse provides me the complete cover I need, like a good insurance policy. People in our world are full of excuses. Excuses that they are convinced provide them all the justification they need to avoid, neglect or reject something as important as their eternal soul and the afterlife and the meaning of life itself, mind you. People on the road to eternal damnation are always full of good-sounding excuses <coughs> to themselves. And people today are absolutely no different to the people of Jesus' day. Full of excuses and reasons for neglecting the important things so they can focus and chase the unimportant things that they, they want to chase and things that they de uh, deem to be important. But really, if you looked at it objectively in the light of reason, um, they're not important at all. An example might be uh, the man who chases the dream of having a, a career and he chases that dream and pours his heart, his attention and his time into it in order to achieve success but neglects his own family at the same time. And he might convince himself that they're providing for their family, that they're providing the best they possibly can for their family, yet they fail to provide the most fundamental needs of their family, which is love and leadership. And that story is repeated over and over again in our culture. People who chase the world and neglect the important things in their life. The thing about excuses is that they often seem reasonable. 
uh, and the, on the on the outside, they seem reasonable uh, things at the first glance. But when you examine them a little more, when you scratch a little bit beneath the surface, you realise there's only a thin veneer of reason over the top, and deep down, there's actually no reason at all. It's an excuse based on a desire. The excuses we come up with start from a very young age. I'm not sure if you know if you're different to me, but from a very young age, when you do the wrong thing. And someone said to you, someone asked, why did you do that? You were very quick at finding a good reason for it, even though it wasn't legitimate. The mind and the flesh is geared that way. So by the time we become adults, we become very adept at making excuses. We become very, very adept at at reasoning around the obvious. but they often defy the test of reason. But we offer them nonetheless. Excuses, though, are only reasonable or acceptable in as much as they conform to the teaching and the standard of Scripture, though. Outside of this, they are not legitimate at all. In our passage today, a certain man, and this man is probably a very rich and wealthy man, probably royalty, for someone to be able to create a feast, invite the whole town. To that, I mean, there aren't many people who, who might be around who, who could do that apart from the very important or possibly royalty. And so he, invite, he, he creates a great supper, puts on a great supper and invites many to come. And he sends his servant out at supper time and says, tell them it's ready to, uh, the, the food is ready to, uh, to, be, uh, to be served. So he sends his servant out and invites them to, to come in quick because it's ready to go. And you think that these people, after having been invited, given time to prepare themselves, would have been dressed up to the hilt, ready to go. I mean, if I'm going to to eat with royalty or someone who's very important, and I've been invited to this particular uh, supper or this particular uh, feast, that I'd be ready to go as soon as someone said, time. However, it's not the case here. Each of those who are invited, and we're given three examples here, come up with some excuse to the servant as to why they can't attend. And who in their right mind would do such a thing? Surely God's people wouldn't do such a thing, would they? Or would they? Now, reading today, we see people who are full of excuses. Excuses that really, on the outset, don't really add up, but are offered anyway. I mean, just to give you a bit of a background of this particular passage, Jesus is criticising, on a direct level, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers of his time, the people who knew God's word and were supposed to have known the difference between right and wrong, and yet they weren't ready. He's criticising the Jews directly, specifically the leaders of the Jews, for not being ready when it was time to be called to this feast. You see, the Jewish people had been invited a long time before through the scriptures. They had the scriptures and the invitation in their hand. For a very, very long time. And they would be the ones to partake in this great feast when God sent the Messiah, his servant, to say, time to come. The great feast is ready. The Messiah, who was sent into the world to restore the creation from sin and the promised king of Israel. Yet, they weren't ready. They were given great promises, great insights into the future, I mean, they were told specifically in Scripture where he would be born, what lineage he would come from. We, we went through this at our Christmas carols evening. They had all the information they needed to recognise the one who'd be sent by God, who'd be the fulfilment of God's amazing promise. They were in essence invited like no other nation to be the beneficiaries of a great feast with the Lord of the universe. Yet when the promise came, when it was time to be ready and they should have been all dressed, ready to go when this king arrived and when the supper was ready to be had, they offered every excuse and they rejected the offer. And Jesus warned them that their rejection meant that the promises would be offered to other people instead. Ones who were not even prepared as they were. Ones who didn't have the scriptures, who did not know the promises, who had no background and were not even related to this royalty. Ones who were not prepared at all. 
Let's look a little bit deeper in this passage. Look at verse 16 and 17. Then he said unto him, A great man made a great supper. A certain man made a great supper and bade many. And sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. You will notice that the invitation and the declaration of readiness are two different things. It's not as if they went to someone's house and said, Hey, there's a massive supper that they're putting on, a great feast. Can you come? They didn't come unannounced. They didn't come, it's not as if they didn't give them time to prepare themselves. They're two separate events. They bade them to come, they invited them to come, and then later on they said, Ready to go. We've been looking at the great feast, or one of the aspects of the series that we've just uh, uh, finished on Jesus, our shepherd, is the feast that God puts down, lays down for us in the, in the presence of our enemies and what God does and the blessings that are offered to the sheep. And in this case, a great person has made a great feast for those he chose to invite. Yet, they weren't ready when it was time to go. They made excuses. Look at verse 18 to 20. They all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray that you have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I, I, I go to prove them. I pray that you have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. They all with one consent. It's almost like they had worked it out together what excuse they were going to come up with. They all declined to go. Yeah, the Bible, this is not the first place or the only place the Bible speaks about excuses. In fact, the Bible is filled with people who have come up with excuses. Let me just share some of them with you. I need to turn there. In Genesis 3.12, Adam gives an amazing excuse concerning why he sinned to God. God says, what have you done such a thing? And he said, and the man said, the woman whom thou hast gave us, gave us to, to be with me, she gave me of the treat and I did eat. A man has been using woman ever since as an excuse. When it came to Aaron's sin and the fact that he actually made, fabricated the golden calf whom the, the Israelites worshipped, while Moses was on top of Mount Sinai. This was Aaron's excuse. In Exodus 32, 24, it said, and, and, he, and I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me. Then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. <laughs> Just popped out. When Moses was called by God, to, to, to go to Egypt to rescue his people, Moses gave a couple of excuses, or Moses tried to use the same excuse at least twice in Exodus 3.11. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then again in, in chapter 4 verse 1, And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Who's, who would have been more qualified than Moses? A, a guy who was actually raised in Pharaoh's house, who knew Egyptian, who knew all the customs, and who was already in, had been empowered, understood how it worked. Who'd be the perfect person? Yet he came up with an excuse, more than one. Gideon, concerning the uh, the deliverance from Midian, said the same thing when God approached him, and he said unto him in Judges six fifteen, "I, my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel?" Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. A God comes to you and says, I'm going to use you to save Israel. And you say, yeah, but I'm just a little guy. Jeremiah is an interesting one. When God approaches Jeremiah and says, I want you to be a prophet for me. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. For I am a child? He was about 70 years old. <laughs> but the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, there thou shalt speak. <clears throat> 
when we look at these examples of excuses that people gave in the Bible, you may be tempted to poke fun at them, which we just did, which we probably shouldn't do. The phrase comes to mind, what on earth are they thinking? Comes to my mind, like, why would, why would Joshua say, oh, I told them to give me the gold, throw it into a fire, and now popped a, a, a calf? I mean, what were you thinking with that? Oh, Aaron, sorry. What were you thinking with that? But here, oftentimes, we're talking about life-changing and, in some cases, world-changing choices. Let me give you an example. To be called a prophet by God, to devote your life as a prophet, probably meant you were going to die a very nasty death. So maybe some of us might have offered some excuses when God said, I want you to be a prophet. If God asked, I want you to be a prophet for me. Yet Moses was being sent to rescue almost two million people. People that he hadn't seen for 40 odd years and he and he had been evicted essentially. He had to run for his life because he'd killed an Egyptian and thinking, well, if I go back there, they may still kill me now. And why would my people trust me? If you look at it, they may have had an excuse. But in the parable we read this morning that we're examining, we see excuses that people offer every single day of their lives. And, and, and excuses that not just non-believers offer, but Christians offer to not do what God asks us to do. Look at verse 18. Luke chapter 14. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. The first excuse that people often offer are their possessions, the things they've got. Oh, I have to go here. I have to go and look after my car, my house, my boat, whatever else it may be. Possessions often get in the way of people doing what's right. A preoccupation with possessions. In this case, this fellow had bought a piece of uh, land and the new owner wanted to go and see it. Now, it may be a piece of land, it may be a house, it may be a car, it may be anything. But if you offer that thing as an excuse, if that thing, thing takes priority over what's important, over obeying God, then you've used that as an excuse. He could have left the looking of the land for another day, but he chose to do it on that day. We should beware of putting our possessions before our faithfulness to the Lord. This is a common temptation that we have in our culture because we are loaded with possessions. Loaded. And we often use those as excuses. Verse 19 says, And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray that you have me excused. The second excuse that people have is responsibilities. I mean, I've bought, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go and prove them and, or test them, check them out, make sure that they're working okay. Now, five yoke of oxen, that's some serious ploughing uh, business happening there. Most people do not have one oxen, let alone five. So this fellow has bought himself five oxen and he must be running a decent-sized business. And so his excuse is, oh, I've just invested in five uh, yoke of oxen. I've got to double-check to make sure that they're working properly. Otherwise, he's going to lose production. Investment in his business is probably not going to, uh, to work if they don't work properly. I mean, an oxen is equivalent to a tractor in our day. So this person had a, a, a responsibility... He had a business to run and so the excuse he offered was that the responsibility he had to his workers and to his business was more important than attending this feast. You may seem strange or might, might seem strange but every person has varying responsibilities in life. We all have responsibilities. But the the priority of those responsibilities reveal where our heart actually is. You can use a good responsibility and usurp a more important responsibility because your heart is not in that one. Do you understand? Putting them in the wrong order is something we commonly do. 
It's what happens also when people make excuses for not doing the right thing. They say, oh, but I, was, I had to take care of this. I had to look after so-and-so. I, I, I feel like I've got a, a, a responsibility to so-and-so or, or to, to complete this. If I didn't do this, I'd be, I'd be in trouble. There are decisions we make every day which follow the same error that this man made when he chose his responsibilities over the more important thing. And these responsibilities often manifest themselves in worldly responsibilities taking, uh, taking priority over church. And we've all done it. I've got a responsibility here, so I don't need to go to church. I've got a responsibility here, so my responsibility to church needs to take a, a back seat. It's easier sometimes to follow the world's responsibilities because the world's responsibilities often don't come with suffering. So we neglect the suffering and the responsibilities that the Lord puts on us and the things he asks us to do and we go and chase the responsibilities that don't require the suffering, that don't require the fire and the testing because it's just easier. It's easier. Being faithful to church sometimes seems harder than working a job where you go every day, work nine to five, and you faithfully fulfill all your responsibilities. The paycheck comes in at the end of the week and you don't, have, you don't think two things about it. You don't think about it. But yet when it comes to your obligations at church, when, you come, when it comes to your obligations for your brothers and sisters, that the Lord actually makes very clear in his word, we often make excuses for those. Reading my Bible daily seems harder than mowing my lawn or cleaning my house. It's like more of a burden to me, doesn't it? To read my Bible every day, yet I clean my house every day. I make my bed every day. I wash my clothes every day. And yet reading the Word for 20 minutes or half an hour just seems like way too much of a burden for me. I am so busy. I am so busy with all my important stuff that I have to do that that has to be put to the side. My time in prayer also has to take second priority to the important things that I have to do. Surely God will understand. I mean, if I don't mow my lawn today, I'll leave it another week. It might, it might grow more than one inch long. What are my neighbours going to think of me? I won't be a good witness to them. My testimony will be ruined in front of everyone. So I don't do what God asked me to obviously do. To provide a smoke screen for myself. As I've said, the challenge of God's calling in our lives is often that it comes with suffering. In fact, Jesus promises it. When God asks us to do something, inevitably it will come with suffering. You know, when God says to you, or God says to us, to love your neighbour as yourself, I will guarantee you that comes with suffering. Because to love someone who doesn't love you back is not an easy thing to do. To forgive someone who hates you is not an easy thing to continue in. To persist with people who are unlovable is hard to continue. It needs much grace, but yet that's what God calls us to. But heaven's responsibilities are much more important than earthly ones. Much more important. We should not offer them as excuses for not doing God's work, yet we do. And if we would examine our hearts and we dig a little deeper into our lives and we look at where we spend the majority of our time, how much TV we watch, how much time we spend messing around on Facebook and other things, how many hobbies we have and how many other things we go chasing in this world, and we, pri we put all those together and we add up all the time that we spend and all the attention and the love that we give those things and then we line them up next to God, and the things we do, we may find that we'll be disappointed. So verse 20 says, And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Once again, we get back to women here. I've married a wife. Surely that's a good enough reason, Lord. I've got some serious issues on my hands. The third excuse that people offer is putting their personal life, family and friends, in front of God. So your possessions, 
come first, responsibilities are often put first, and then you have, my family needs me, my wife needs me, so therefore I cannot. This is the wrong order, my brethren. To put your family and your friends, yes, men, even your wife and, and, and wives, even your husbands, to put them before the living God, the one who saved you, to put them before Christ is not the right order. In fact, it destroys our testimony in front of our family and our friends who we're trying to witness to when we put them before God. It destroys the message because we're saying that Jesus is our Lord and our Saviour and yet we go and put them before him. Well, that's not much of a Lord, is it? To say Jesus is Lord is saying he's my master. I do whatever he asks me to do. My life is committed to him and he's my saviour. means I love him above all. In fact, Jesus clearly says, if you love your mother and father and wife and brethren more than him, you're not worthy of him. The picture here is that even marriage is less important than the kingdom of God. Family and, and personal stuff should be made to work around what God says. God doesn't not like family and friends and, and marriages. He loves that stuff. He, he instituted it. But there has to be a priority to it. Family and personal should work around God's kingdom. And our responsibilities to him should take precedent over all things. So how does the master respond here to these three excuses that are given to him? Well, he gets angry. And rightfully so. He's angry because he's been refused. Because he's put this massive feast on. He's done it out of love. He didn't have to do it. They gave indication that they were actually coming. Because they didn't say, no, we can't come from the beginning. So he's expecting to be there and then they don't show up. But he did not want the feast to go to waste. So he invites others who were not even prepared to come, who were not even able to clothe themselves to be there, who were the outcasts of society, but who would definitely appreciate it. He doesn't find these people in well-to-do suburbs with good jobs and, 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 you know, with polished cars ready to drive to the actual last site. He finds these people in streets and lanes People who are poor, maimed, halt and blind. And once he scours the city and there's still room, he tells his servant to go to the highways, the byways, go to the hedges even. Go to the hedges. <laughs> go to where there's, where there's bushes and see if there's any people living around there. And he calls all to come in. Verse 21 says, So that servant came and showed his lord these things, and the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be full. He wanted to give. immediate application here, the immediate one, the, the, the exact um, uh, definition or the interpretation of this particular thing is that the Jews who were well to do in terms of the knowledge that, the, that God had given them, in terms of their heritage, in terms of their lineage and the promises that God had made to them should have been the ones who said yes. But they were too preoccupied with their worldly affairs to answer the invitation. In all practicality, is the ones that God then sent, who he found in the highways and byways and the streets and, the, and, and in the hedges, was us, the Gentiles. We were the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Now, what do, what do, what do I mean by that? We were poor spiritually. We were poor in terms of scripture. The Gentiles did not even have the scriptures. The Gentiles didn't know. If you go to the person in the street, and we're going to be looking at this in our conference, 
When you, go, when you go and share the gospel these days to someone in the streets, the odds are they have no understanding of what the Bible has taught about the creation of the world, the fall of man, and how we got to this particular place. So you end up in a situation where you have to go back to square one to explain it to them, because otherwise they can't understand it. The Gentiles did not have the blessings of the word of God. The Jews did. They were the, author of, the authors of it and the keepers of it. The Gentiles did not have the promises of God. They didn't even know. They wouldn't know that promise from their elbow. Yet the Jews had the promises. The Gentiles were altogether separated from God. And so we are blessed this morning for having received the invitation of the gospel and blessed because we have entered into the kingdom of God. But we too often fail the invitation. I don't mean the invitation of salvation. We we're happy to come to that one. Let me explain this a little bit further. Turn to John chapter 4 verse 30 with me. The invitation for us now, when a person gets saved and enters into the kingdom of God, is every time God invites us to join him in his work. Does that make sense? So God invites you and me, God has specific things for us to do that are our banquet that God has prepared for us. And he invites us to them, each of us individually. And our job, the work we do for the Lord, is the banquet that's set before us. You might think, that's a bit strange. How can work be the banquet? How can, how can uh, following the Lord in obedience be, that, uh, be like a, going to a banquet? Well, let me explain this further. In John chapter 4, verse 30, Jesus is speaking about his life and his ministry. And he says in verse 30, Then they went out of the city and came unto him. This is the Lord. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. They were worried about him because he hadn't eaten. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. I've got food that you don't even know about. Verse 33, Therefore said the disciples one to another, once again, they didn't get what he was talking about, Hath any man brought him or to eat? Did anyone bring him food? And verse 34, Jesus answers very clearly, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Does that make sense to you? The meat, the food that Jesus had, for himself was to complete the job that God had given him. Now be clear, clear here. God the Father had given Jesus work to do. He gave him instructions. I want you to complete this. And Jesus' food, the thing that sustained him, that kept him going, was to complete this work. When a person gets saved, God creates a desire within them. You know when a baby's born? They have this innate desire to drink milk. There's a hunger in here, right? And so they want to be satisfied. And so unless you feed them, they keep on crying. This is the same desire that God puts within his children when they're born again. There's a desire to want to do the things of God, a desire to want to obey, or to want to see God's name glorified. We've been designed to crave certain things as believers. One of those things is the word of God, which the, which the Bible itself says is the milk that we are called to drink. But the other thing is that we've been, we've been uh, built, in, in, built into us is to obey that word and to follow God where he's leading us. That's a desire that God builds into his children but the problem we have is that even though God builds that particular hunger into every one of his children, we can suppress it. We can suppress that hunger and desire by following, instead of God's leading, the flesh. And we can feed ourselves with the rubbish of the world and pretend that we're satisfied. Does that make sense? Only God's only obedience to God, only when we fulfill God's plan for us, when we follow the Saviour step by step, do we find fulfilment. 
the most, some of the most miserable people on this planet are Christians who refuse to follow the Lord but are filling up their lives and their hearts with the scourings and the rubbish of this world. The things that they think are going to fulfil them but they don't follow the things of God. So they create the excuse that they have to do these things. This is what this whole thing is about. The excuses are really people following their flesh rather than the spirit. And they need to create excuses for why they don't do the things of God. As Christians, we can offer excuses not to do the will of God in our lives. We use the same excuses that men offer in the parable of the master of the house. We do the same thing. I have family. I have responsibilities. I have possessions I've got to take care of. The master of our house is Christ. He is the master. If he is your saviour, but he's not your Lord this morning, you have a different Christ than what's in the Bible. Let me share that with you this morning. If, you're, if, if the Christ that you follow is happy for you to do whatever you like and doesn't ask you to follow him, you follow a different Christ to the one that's in the Bible. If the Christ that you, that you call on for your salvation doesn't care about your excuses never disciplines you, that's a different Christ to the one that's in the Bible. The master of our house is Christ, the master. And the God who sent him into this world has prepared this meal for us to be filled. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 with me. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Just so that we understand this thing very clearly, the food that we have to eat, the things that we have to do, have been pre-prepared for us, just as that master, just as that Lord created this feast and set it before the people, prepared it before so they can come and eat. God has done the same thing with us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We've been created for that very purpose, for good works. Look, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He prepared it already before. He's ordained it before that we're supposed to walk in them. That's us as a church, but that's us as individuals every step of the way. God has prepared works for you to do. What are they? Do you know what they are? Are you walking in them now? Because I guarantee if you're not walking in his works this morning, you are not a happy person. You don't have the peace and the joy that God can give you if you were sitting at a feast together with him because you're chasing other rabbits in your life. The reality is that while God prepares these works for us to walk in them, it's like the master inviting us to the banquet. We can choose to make excuses not to do them. And the reality is that none of our excuses are any better than the ones that were, that were offered by Moses or Aaron, Jeremiah or Adam. They are not based on reason, but short-sightedness, ignorance, and selfishness. But what's reasonable? What's reasonable for us to do for God? God has prepared works for us. He saved us from eternity in hell. And now he's called us to be his children, to follow him. What's reasonable for us to do? God, surely, if I've got responsibilities... Uh, surely they've got to do something with those. Surely you don't want all of me. Surely I can't put you first in every area of my life. How's my life going to look like if I do that? Well, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 tells us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service reasonable it's not over the top it's not grandiose it's not unreasonable it's simply reasonable to offer ourselves as daily sacrifices you know what you do with a sacrifice you kill it or you kill it and you, then you burn it up take your pick a sacrifice is something that's offered and this is speaking about our living bodies, the bodies that we exist in now. Yes, these corruptible ones, the ones that are dying and decaying, God wants to do stuff with them. The Apostle Paul says that in the light of salvation, 
and what God has given to us, it is only reasonable that we should live our lives daily for him. Sacrifice to him. Not sacrifice to anything else. Dead to everything else, but focus mainly on him. Focus. He's our first top priority. To be a living sacrifice means you put him first in every area of your life. Everything else takes second place. Daily offered to the Lord for his service. Not to earn our way to heaven because it's already been given to us, but in gratitude for what we've been saved from and how we were saved and the love that was shown to us. Only a life which is offered in this way is holy and acceptable to God. How does it look when we offer excuses? What excuses do we offer for not following God and his will? For sitting back and letting other Christians do the hard lifting? You know what? I don't have to deal with that person. Oh, well, I'm going to avoid them. You know what? So-and-so, Pastor Frank can go and take care of that person. Pastor Frank can go and visit, or Mary can go and visit that person who's sick over there. I'll just sit back here. I'm too busy in my life. So-and-so needs prayer. Oh, they pray for him at the front of the church. You know what? That's okay. That's enough prayer for them. What do I have to pray every day? Think of the excuses that we offer. Let me offer you an earthly example. Let's say you were born in a very poor part of the world. You, you, you were born in a village and the area had been racked by war and famine and the people that you knew or the people that you, that you were born into were dying of diseases that the rest of the world didn't have a problem with. Okay? They were dying readily of diseases that could be cured if they just had someone there who knew medicine. Let's say that particular community saw you as a bright kid and in their desperation, because no one was coming to help them, they said, how about we, we put all our money together and we send this young person off to the West so that they, they can get a good education and then maybe they can learn medicine and come back to us so that we might be saved here. And they do. They collect all their belongings. They, they scrounge for every dollar and everything they can, they can put together. And they send you to Australia. With all the wealth that's here. With fantastic schools and, and, uh, and freedom and, and wealth. And you, go, you end up going to the university and you end up completing an education in medicine. You do really well for yourself. You top your class. And then when you, when you finish your... Um, your, your, your class, and you, mind you, you've had all your food, accommodation, you've had nothing to worry about for that, for that whole time you were in this country. They paid for you and gave up food from their own mouths so that you can have the best shot of becoming a doctor. You lived years in luxury compared to your family back at home. And after years of schooling, you finally graduate. And you begin working as a doctor. Woohoo! And so you begin to earn money. That money looks pretty good. You're earning $300,000 plus. And so you buy your car and you tell your people back at home, I've got to just do a bit more practice here before I come out to you. I need more experience. I have responsibilities here. I've got things I've got to take care of. So I have to just hold on. I've just got to complete this. So over the weeks and months and years, you build up your wealth, your experience, month by month and year by year. You continue to accumulate status. You accumulate wealth. While your friends and family back at home are slowly dying and succumbing to one preventable disease after the other. After many years, you decide with all the assets that you have here and the family that you've now established here, that they're your responsibility. You've got to look after your family, don't you? You've got a wife and you've got a child. You've got a business with people that rely on you. You've got to practice and there are people here in Australia that need you. And so you convince yourself and you tell, you tell your, your people back over there that it's just too much to go back and sacrifice it all now. 
So you live the remainder of your life in the luxury of a grand home, a rich estate, and the people that you care, that cared for you and you once cared for are dead and gone. What would you say about that person? Would, you, would that be shameful? What would you say about that person? Would you have a great respect for that person? No, you wouldn't, would you? What if I said to you that we Christians do the same thing? You might say, not me. I'm telling you, yes, we. We. Because we don't see the death and destruction around us. When we refuse to follow the Lord, we're refusing to do his work and someone else gets lost and dies and succumbs to a preventable disease that Jesus came to free them from. When we don't present the gift of eternal life to people, then we fail in our mission. And we would rather be more comfortable where we are while people are dying around us. But it's not just sharing the gospel I'm talking about. It's our lives. When we put our responsibilities, our families and our possessions in front of what God does, inevitably people are going to be hurt by it. But yet we do it all the time. And we make excuses after excuses for not following God, for not being faithful. I speak this to our shame. What if we, who were saved from a life of ruin and eternal damnation by the one sacrifice that cost God the most heartache and the one thing that he loved above all, and we offer excuse after excuse because we would rather live in comfort and relative ease. This is our challenge. What if we offered excuses for not caring for our heavenly family? You know, people often put down the church. Plenty of good reason to. The church is a very imperfect place. There are plenty of corrupt churches and there are plenty of churches that aren't even preaching the gospel anymore because they're throwing away the word of God. But what about if you find a church that preaches the gospel and wants to do the will of God? What's your responsibility to your brethren? Let me ask you that. What's your responsibility to one another? Because I'll share something with you. If you think your responsibility to your brethren is less than your responsibility to your worldly family, then you've got things upside down, my brothers and sisters. And not being a church when a new believer comes in and needs an example to live by and you're not there, you've just robbed that person of some word or seed that they may be looking for. When we aren't there being the examples to people around us, when we're not there sacrificing our lives daily, then inevitably people suffer. And God is robbed of his glory. What if we're too busy chasing our worldly goods, looking after our worldly things and looking after our worldly families to be busy about the things of God. What self-respect should we have? Should God be happy with that? If God has asked you to go and serve him in a particular way and you say, no, I'm too busy. I can't sacrifice my family or my friends or whatever else it is. What did the master of the house respond with? He was angry. What's the results of the excuses that these men give? Well, the master of the house says, none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Let me tell you the danger for us. Let me tell you the danger for each one of us. Is that if God has asked us to do certain things, many of which are just very plain in his word. Very, very plain. Do this, do this, do this. And then we say to him, no, we lose we lose not just the blessing, but we risk the judgment. And then we rob him of his glory and we rob our brethren of our 
obedience. The loss of the invitation. Refusing God's invitation might mean we lose a blessing forever. Because God then calls on someone else to go and do that particular work. What kind of excuses have you made this morning? What are your long-term excuses? The ones you've used over and over and over again. That you've said, this is the one that covers all my bases. This is the one that gets me out of this particular bind here. Surely I don't have to go, God wouldn't expect me to do that. So I'll throw in this one. This covers me every time. What excuses are you currently using? But what opportunities are you currently missing out on and failed to accept? Please, let's drop the excuses. Let's submit ourselves to God. If you're unsaved this morning, the invitation goes to you first. And the invitation is going out again. And God continues to send out the invitation until the numbers are complete for the feast. And then the door closes. So the invitation is going out to you again. But you can receive the promise of salvation, the promise of a great and glorious day when you can yourself can sit down at supper with God himself. To be forgiven of all of your sins. To be given a fresh start. To have Jesus in your life. To be protected. And to be led all the way home. The invitation comes with the provision for you. You may not have the right clothing. You may not speak the right way. You may not have. You might not live in the upper classes. But God gives you everything you need. He gives you the clothes, which is the righteousness of Christ. He gives you the transportation and he makes sure you will make it to that thing if you would simply believe in Jesus Christ as your saviour. Would you do that this morning before you leave if you don't know him? If Jesus is not your saviour this morning, then I fear for you. But if you receive Christ as your saviour, you can throw away your old filthy clothes of self-righteousness and replace them with perfectly spotless ones, making you instantly ready for that great day. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, I invite you to come and speak to us about that invitation. Because if you haven't read it for yourself, it's a wonderful invitation. Come as you are, and God will sort you out. If you're saved this morning and have already been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, if your sins have been forgiven, and as Paul says, you've, you have not and you have not believed in vain, a faithless belief, then your invitation is to be filled with the righteousness of God in every day of your life. To feed on the goodness of God when you walk in his paths and to do the works that he has prepared for you beforehand from the foundation of the world. Your fill will come from a life filled with the Holy Spirit when you listen to his leading, when you follow his direction. As you obey his leading and listen to his word, he will teach you his scriptures so that your understanding will deepen and you will be a blessing to others as well. Fail to listen. Refuse to obey. Refuse to come to the invitation or to follow through with the invitation and you will lose that blessing and someone else will eat your lunch. We will all give an account. Every one of us will give an account, the saved and the unsaved. The saved will give an account before Christ's throne, but I suspect there's going to be a few tears at that particular um, time. Though we won't be thrown into hell, as the other ones will, we may look back at our lives and look at all the missed opportunities that we had and all the excuses that we came up with. And it all will be revealed. Fail to listen. Fail to obey and someone else will do it in your place. Why throw away your blessings in this life and in the next for a pitiful earthly reward? Make this year the year of no excuses. Let's make a commitment that this year I'm going to examine all my excuses that I've been making for all these past years 
and I'm going to commit myself 100% following Jesus Christ as my Saviour and my Lord. I'm going to walk as closely to him as I possibly can. And in the, if I'm in the middle of a flock, I want to be as close to him at the front. I'm not going to lag behind the back anymore. When I was growing up, I, sitting at the back meant you're a troublemaker at the school. True. Because you sit at the back because you were furthest away from the teacher. So you can get away with a few extra things, right? You know what I'm talking about. The guys know. Because I used to be sitting at the back. Let's commit our lives to following Jesus from the front. Wanting to be as close to him as we possibly can. Let's commit to not making any more excuses this year. And if I'm not sure about making, if I'm making an excuse, dump it anyway and follow him. Do the harder thing, not the easier thing. Do the thing which leads to more suffering, not less suffering, because he suffered for us. Let's commit our lives and give all for his glory in 2020. God bless you. Let's close with a hymn.